Welcome back. 403-974-8255 is our number. We've got a lot more to get to on the program. But we're going to talk about what seems like a disturbing trend when it comes to energy projects. Now, there's some optimism when it comes to the progress of some big projects. The Transmount Pipeline expansion expected to be operational later this year. Work continues on the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline, which, of course, is a key component of the uh, LNG Canada projects on the West Coast. So it's encouraging that these projects are moving forward, but it's a little troubling to see the extent to which some opponents are prepared to go. Story, for example, here uh, from last week, there was a blog post on a website called BC Counter Info, which is detailing, taking credit for a number of acts of sabotage to the coastal gas link pipeline. Now, this is the first time we've seen that project uh, targeted by eco-radicals. Of course, a year ago, there was a violent coordinated attack on a work camp. And still, you know, a year later, there are no arrests that have been made. So it seems as though some of these anarchists or eco-radicals or whatever we're calling them, uh, are they feeling emboldened here? Are they feeling somewhat desperate, given that these projects are moving forward? But there's a process for dealing with all of this. And so this kind of lawlessness it really can't stand. And of course, you know, the workers are the ones on the front lines here, and, and they're in the most danger when it comes uh, to these kinds of acts. You know, whether it is an actual act of violence or, you know, the kind of vandalism or sabotage that can certainly put lives at risk. You know, that's, that's inherently dangerous. So why is this happening? What do we need to do about it? Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Cody Battersill, founder and chief spokesman with Canada Action. Cody, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on again. So I know you keep a close eye on, on all of this. What, what are you seeing and hearing? What's going on here? Well, it is definitely a concerning trend. Recently with Trans Mountain, some protesters were sentenced to a month in jail for breaking a court injunction for contempt of court for uh, we've seen lots of other protests people refusing to leave trees people talking about putting tree spikes in trees to prevent them from being removed uh of course what you mentioned happened at the coastal gas link work site where a very violent attack with axes uh destroying machinery threatening workers and this anonymous uh, claim of sabotage it's very serious we're talking about women and men who are going to work following the law following the highest standards for environmental protection in the world they're going to work to feed their families they're going to work to get energy pr products to all canadians to keep our economies our livelihoods our families going and they're being threatened they're being attacked and it's a, it's a part of this trend in Canada, unfortunately, where we are not getting stuff done as fast as it should or at all. And we've seen other countries benefit. It's all tied together, and mm. it's really concerning. Well, it is. And, you know, clearly the intent here is to, to delay or prevent these projects from going ahead. But there is a, a process to all of that. There is the review process, the approval process, there are court challenges, and those take a long time, right? I mean, you know, even though these projects are moving forward, it's taken a long time to get to this point. But what's going on here is outside the bounds here. It's outside of all of it. It's, it's using lawlessness to achieve what couldn't be achieved legally, isn't it? It is. 
we have to ask ourselves, do we value the rule of law? Do we enforce the rule of law? Should people working be protected and feel safe from physical harm and from threats? If people are claiming that they're drilling pipe uh, holes in pipelines, if that causes an explosion and prevents someone from getting home to their family, that's incredibly serious. And I think our elected leaders need to look at strengthening uh, resources for our investigative agencies. We need to look at strengthening protection of uh, these projects, these resource projects, these infrastructure projects, so that we can have uh, some reasonable expectation of safety, of getting stuff done on time, of reducing the delays and the obstructionism. We have to remember that these projects are in the national interest and they're in the best interest of the global environment. Well, and yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that because I I know that the people who do this, you know, they're of the opinion that the end justifies the means. I think to themselves, they can justify what they're doing here because they believe that there's a harm that these projects are are going to inflict. But they're, they're really missing the bigger picture here, aren't they? They're missing the bigger picture completely. And like you mentioned, you have a court system and a regulatory system if you have a challenge. These projects have been delayed because of the regulatory uncertainty. They're now under construction. They're getting built. They're very important for all Canadians if we want to maximize the value of our resources, which allows us to maximize the societal and economic benefits for our communities. So, you know, blocking... LNG has allowed the United States to build more and export more and sell more. Mexico's looking at building. Mozambique is building. Qatar is expanding. Australia's building. Nigeria is expanding. There's many more countries on that list. And the global demand for liquefied natural gas is expected to grow 76% in the next 17 years. We have to get Canada in the game Right now, BC's, there's a bit of a delay on the Indigenous-led Cedar LNG project. we got to get that going as well. Uh, and, and we need, as a country, to come together and try to reduce this polarization, try to increase the level of understanding. And we have to stand united. There's no room for threats, for physical violence, for threats of sabotage. This is our energy security and independence, and this is the livelihood of women and men that we're talking about. Right. And you touched on an important point, too. You know, the idea that that somehow the opponents of these projects are standing up for First Nations or standing up for Indigenous rights. You look at the, especially on Coastal GasLink, the involvement with the partnership with First Nations communities. It's it's certainly something that they want to move forward on. Yeah, absolutely. 20 of 20 elected councils of the uh, nations on the route support the project with mutual benefit agreements. Cedar LNG is being led by an Indigenous community and partners. Same with the uh, um, um, Rockies LNG. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a bunch of other projects. Uh, The Niska Nation is involved. Um, There's so many examples where you have the overwhelming majority of these Indigenous communities in support. And then you have uh, certainly at times some very vocal often uh, smaller 
uh, vocal uh, uh, opponents. Mm-hmm. That's who Greenpeace and these environmental groups seem to really support and talk to. They seem to kind of ignore the overwhelming majority uh, of communities that want economic economic opportunity and to be, reduce on-reserve poverty. We just need more balance, and we have to accept that the number one thing Canada can do for the global climate is export as much liquefied natural gas to Asia to reduce coal power. The number one thing we can do for our allies is get in the game so that they can reduce their reliance on Russia and other unfriendly suppliers. And the number one thing we can do for our national economy and these local Indigenous communities and local uh, uh, economic job opportunities is get in the game. Get these projects built. Enough delays and certainly there's no place for threats, for violence. Uh, We have to respect the rule of law. Right, and that's got to be a line in the sand. I mean, you know, people can disagree over these projects, but it seems to me that for environmentalists, prominent individuals or groups who say that they don't support these kinds of tactics, who don't support acts of or threats of, you know, sabotage or violence, what do they need to do here in terms of not just distancing themselves from that, but but calling it out, condemning it, or, or helping us find the culprits? Is that what we need to see here? Yeah, we need we need all of the above. I mean, if you're... If your wilderness committee or Stand Earth or any of these groups who have been saying for more than a decade, oil demand's going to fall, we don't need natural gas, they've been proven incorrect and wrong. I don't think they have a lot of credibility when it comes to energy demand. And by blocking Canada, we've kept Canada out of the game. Other countries have benefited. So then they use the regulatory system. They use lawyers. They hold protests. Well, when most Indigenous communities and most Canadians are on side with continuing to take climate action, reducing local emissions with our production, and also having the biggest impact globally exporting, helping our allies, there's a balance, climate and energy security. And, and when that's the case, these groups need to them, work uh, with authorities, work with communities, and call for an end to these ridiculous, uh, uh, protests and opposition movements that are simply increasing polarization and turning people against each other. Much of what they're sharing isn't even factual, and uh, they really need to call it out. And and absolutely, it has to come to an end. Indeed. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Much more Canada action on Facebook and on Twitter. Cody, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thanks a lot, Rob. All the best. Cheers, uh, Cody Battersill, founder and uh, chief spokesperson for Canada Action. And I think raising some important points about these kinds of tactics. No, the end does not justify the means. And yes, environmentalists who say they oppose these kind of tactics uh, need to do more than just offer those kind of, you know, little blanket statements. I don't support this kind of thing. Okay, well, that's good. But if you're prepared to piggyback off of it, if it achieves the same thing you want to see achieved, then you're part of the problem. So it really needs to be a much more direct condemnation or even those prepared to say, yes, here's what we know about it or what kind of information we might have with regard to what's going on here, who might be responsible. Uh, Because, yes, this is putting people's lives at risk. This is dangerous. And again, no, the end does not justify the means. And, you know, this this post about these holes that were allegedly drilled in the coastal gasoline pipeline. And who knows? Maybe that didn't happen. Maybe that, that, that claim is untrue. I mean, if it is, obviously, that's an act of vandalism. 
the kind of sabotage that could put people in jeopardy is potentially very dangerous. But even just the threat of that and the resources required now to go out and to, to investigate, you know, there's a cost involved in that. So these things do need to be taken seriously. So a lot of questions remain about the extent to which China was attempting to interfere in Canadian elections in 2019-2021 and the extent to which that was successful. There are a lot of questions, though. Now, there's been some testimony this week before Commons Committee. Whether that gets us any closer to the truth, I guess, remains to be seen. There are calls for a public inquiry. Whether that happens remains to be seen. Look, there's no doubt that there have been attempts by China to meddle in Canadian politics. I mean, that much is, I think, beyond any doubt and at this point well established. So there, there are some questions that arise from that, right? To what end? What is China up to here? And we heard the, uh, the clip earlier today from uh, the director of CSIS talking about the extent to which China is involved in this, the amount of resources they're putting into these efforts through what's known as the United Front Work Department. So this is clearly a priority. And, you know, we're on their radar here. You know, they see Canada as, you know, a place where these efforts need to be deployed. But from that, you know, what can we do to mitigate this or prevent this or respond to this? Are we just helpless observing all of this and hoping for the best? So that may be one of the things that comes out of all of this once we better understand it. You know, to, to look at what we could have done differently and maybe make some changes. But do we have to wait until that point? What are our allies doing? What are other countries doing to respond to this, to deal with this? And maybe we can look there. Well, joining us for some further thoughts on, on some of these questions, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, one of this country's foremost intelligence and security experts, Dr. Wesley Wark, the senior fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation. Dr. Wark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks so much for uh, having me on. Great yeah, this discussion. has been yeah thrust into the, the spotlight in a big way. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of politics involved here, but this is a, a hugely important national security story. As, as you sort of take the big picture view right now of what's come to light, what's happening, what's being asked in terms of questions, what, what's your sense of how all of this has unfolded so far? Well, I think, first of all, um, it's important to understand should come as no surprise that, that China had an interest in uh, attempting to uh, interfere in various ways in the Canadian um, federal election, particularly the one in 2021. Um, what we've seen from the leaked documents is is a kind of expression of Chinese interest, of what they were after, if if this intelligence is accurate. And of course, none of us in the, on the public side of things have, have actually seen any of these leaked documents, and, and none of them have been have been published by the the media organizations that they've come to. So we're we're um, you know we're we're uh, seeing all this at, at third hand. But clearly, some uh, Chinese objectives at play here. And the other thing that um, really strikes me from the leaked material is that um, what CSIS was hearing was a lot of boasting from Chinese officials at various consulates, particularly in. The major ones in in Toronto and uh, in Vancouver, boasting about how well they had, you know, performed the objectives set out by Beijing. Neither of those things, expression of an objective or boasting, you know, translates into any significant election impact. And I think the you know the best um, evidence we have that the that any election impact was was um, was not significant is the recent report 
independent report uh, produced by a former Deputy Minister of Justice, uh, Morris Rosenberg, which was uh, released a couple of days ago. And that report is interesting, not just for its findings, but I think really for what it, it tells us about, or, or, you know, what it suggests in terms of how we really need to think about this problem. And, and I just, I, I wish we could pay more attention to that, that question of the broader picture of what's at stake in, um, in election interference and, and what kinds of forms of election interference we need to be particularly worried about. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the overall integrity of the election, that, that's a big question. Um, you know, it's possible that some, some efforts at a targeted level, at a riding level, might not necessarily impact the outcome of the election overall, but, but are still concerning. So where is that threshold for concern? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, Rob. And that's, in fact, one of the, the issues that Morris Rosenberg uh, raises. And when the, this mechanism, I'll call it that for want of a better word, was, was first established, a Canadian government mechanism to deal with um, any indications of serious election interference uh, back in 2019, the model it was looking to was the experience of the United States in its presidential election in 2016, where, where we know the Russians had, had attempted in various ways to, um, to interfere and, and skew the results. And so that, that was the concern. But at the same time, it was understood that um, you know, any democratic government doesn't want to be seen as kind of politicizing um, an election dynamic in the midst of an election. That, you know, that would obviously be very dangerous. So they created this panel of, of senior um, public servants uh, who would you know, decide whether uh, there was sufficient intelligence about election interference to warrant issuing a, a public warning. Uh, to inform the Canadian public and as a kind of deterrent message. Uh, and what we know in terms of how that mechanism worked is that uh, in both 2019, uh, and it was set up before that election in 2019, and again in 2021, no warnings were issued. Uh, the intelligence available to that panel of senior civil servants, which included the National Security Intelligence Advisor and the Clerk of the Privy Council, uh, the intelligence didn't indicate serious election interference, to the extent that, uh, that it would cast any doubt on, on the fact that Canada had, had a fair and free election, as it's called. What Morris Rosenberg says, and this is where, you know, things get a little bit murky and tricky and certainly up for debate, is he said, well, maybe we need to think about kind of rejigging our understanding of where the threshold for a public warning uh, lies. Should it, do we really need to wait to see actual impacts on the ground in a serious way? Should we think about, as he called it, potential impacts? Yeah. Should we think about a threshold that, that would be lower so that it may not have national significance, but maybe there's some interference in a particular riding or a particular campaign that would still warrant a warning? And Morris Rosenberg, to his credit, I think, uh, wanted to raise these issues, but is not definitive about them and says they warrant further study. They're complex issues. There's arguments on both sides. But that's the kind of thing we need to think about going forward. The other thing that Morris Rosenberg's report really reminds us of, and I think this is so important and so missing in the current debate, is while we started out worrying about states, initially Russia, interfering in, in democratic elections in the West, increasingly our concern over time has become the possibility of domestic interference. And by domestic interference, you know, this can be um, a, a swirl of disinformation around an election campaign. It can be uh, forms of intimidation uh, targeted against um, campaigners or parties. 
It can be threats of violence to political leaders. We saw all of that. It's all very unfortunate, but we saw some of that, at least, during the election in 2021. And so maybe, and this is, again, I think an important point that, that the Rosenberg report makes, maybe we need to think in a much broader way about election interference. Yes, states are of concern. States will interfere. We need to have the tools to you know, prevent that and warn the public. But we also have to pay attention to the domestic problem. And we also have to pay attention to the fact that interference, who does interference really harm? Uh, probably in most cases, it's not going to swing an election. What it really harms uh, is, is often a diaspora community that it targets. And, and that's another kind of interference in democratic practice that, again, should be part of this, this debate. But we've been so focused on these leaks and so focused on China that I think we missed some of that bigger picture. Well, it's an interesting point. Um, in terms of those tools, then, that we have to, to monitor all of this or to take action where warranted uh, or to respond after the facts, uh, you know, are, do we have enough of those tools at our disposal? I mean, should we be looking to to other countries uh, that are dealing with some of these same issues for some guidance, maybe on on what's what are best practices? Yeah, Rob, a, a great question. I mean, we certainly have some tools, and the the problem of foreign interference or domestic interference is not a new one for our security and intelligence community. <clears throat> it's hard to um, excuse me, hard to look into that community with all its secrecy and say. You know, they're absolutely top rate at this. They have all the resources and talent they need. You know, the intelligence is, is terrific. It's, it's just hard to know that. Um, but we do have review bodies that look at that question and, and can kind of assess that question of just how well are they performing, especially the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. So um, we have a capacity in the federal government on the intelligence side, a counterintelligence capacity. And interestingly, you know, there's some indications in leaked documents um, that, that, that um, Chinese officials were a bit concerned about that Canadian capacity. And there's, there's one leaked um, record that talks about uh, Chinese officials warning um, uh, friends in Canada to, to be careful about their political contacts um, in case they run afoul of a foreign interference investigation. So... China knows we're on this, and, and that's an indication that we have some strengths in, in that regard. It, it's, it's always an area where you probably can use more resources and more, more capabilities, but, but hard to measure um, specifically. The other, I think, key part of this is, is the whole question of you know, public knowledge and public education and what, what is often referred to as national security literacy. And, and I think much of the response to um, the media stories you know, frankly indicates understandably that, that people are very alarmed suddenly about this because perhaps it's the first time they've heard about it. They don't quite know what to make of these, these leaks. It, it, looks, it looks very concerning. Uh, and some of the language used by the, by the media is, is certainly kind of, um, <laughs> you know, flows at a hot, hot temperature. So, uh, you know, we've seen some disturbing polls, Angus Reid poll, for example, that suggests now that because of these stories, many Canadians feel that perhaps the election was stolen, something like that. And there's no evidence for any of that. But, but that all reflects, I think, an important point that if we're going to really come to grips with uh, election interference, domestic, foreign, we have to have a nationalist security literate population. Well, how do you get there? You get there in part by, by uh, really requiring the government to provide more information about 
threats to national security, more information and statements about the realities of election interference. Uh, and we haven't really seen that uh, in this country. Other countries do that much better than we do. Australia, I think, is a good example of doing it in a more fulsome way. And there was a, a recent um, release of an annual threat assessment by the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, a public speech that, that really laid out the picture uh, for, for Australians of the dangers of what's going on in the world of espionage and interference and, and using some what I call pretty salty Australian language. I don't mean, you know, swearing in public, but, but really being quite blunt about what, what the Australians were seeing mm-hmm. um, happening to their country and, and, you know, raising alarms. We don't get that kind of message from our security intelligence agencies. They're, I don't think they do enough reporting in public. I don't think they're transparent enough about what they know. And I think that's a big area uh, that needs change. And, and again, it's one of the things that Morris Rosenberg is suggesting, better public communications so that people have a sort of ground-level understanding of, of how they can come to their own judgments about just how dangerous this is. Well, interesting. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Work, appreciate the insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thank you so much, Rob. Great to chat. Likewise. All the best. That's Wesley Work, Senior Fellow of the Center for International Governance Innovation. So some thoughts on kind of the big picture here, what it is we're dealing with, maybe what kind of a response uh, we need here going forward. <music> Off the top in this hour, a remarkable discovery, uh, deep, deep. Uh, under the waters of Lake Huron, on the U.S. side, the Michigan side of Lake Huron. Uh, The discovery of a remarkably preserved sunken ship. A discovery that has helped shed some light on what occurred one blustery night back in September of 1894. A collision between two ships, the Ironton and the Ohio. The Ironton ended up sinking. The captain and six sailors were on board. Only two crewmen survived. Appears as though the lifeboat remained attached to the ship. As I say, it's all been found, finally, after all of these years. And it's a discovery that's helping to solve some of the questions and some of the mysteries that have persisted since that night more than 125 years ago. So quite a remarkable discovery. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is someone who's been uh, actively involved in the uh, discovery and the investigation. Jeff Gray is with the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. He's the superintendent uh, based in Michigan. Jeff, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. It's an honor to be on. So what's interesting is the discovery was made a few years ago, as I understand. And so this is all now being made public because it took some time to really study this, understand what happened here. What, what's been the process over the last few years here? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a great question. And, um, you know, the, the discovery, um, what, the way we find these shipwrecks is, is through mapping the, the Lake Huron and so little is known about the bottom of the ocean and the Great Lakes that there's a big push to do more high-resolution maps of, of, the, of the lake so we can better understand it, not just discover these amazing historical treasures there, but to better understand the ecology of the lake itself. And so we're, we're systematically doing some mapping over here in Lake Huron and, and trying to, to, to find, and we also find these wrecks in, in the process of it. And so um, typically when we're doing that work, we call it mowing the lawn. You're going back and forth right. with a boat basically uh, mapping it. And you don't know for sure what you find when you hit that signature. So we get a, a painted signature through sound of it. And so we knew it was a shipwreck because if you can see some of the images 
this is just remarkably preserved. But it took us a while to get what we call our eyes down on the site itself, and that's either through divers or through uh, underwater robots. In this case, we used underwater robots. Uh, we did a little bit of that in 2019, but we wanted to more thoroughly document it before we opened up to the public to go visit it. We were a little hindered by COVID to get out there and get some exploration out, but we did so over the last two years, and we're ready to uh, to share it with the public. And it's just, as you as you did a great job describing, it's just a remarkable uh, discovery. It is. And, you know, I mean, th- this this was a busy part of, you know, the Great Lakes for shipping traffic at that time. And I believe there's a number of other uh, shipwrecks that are believed to be kind of in this, this same general area. But there have been so yeah. many questions about this one. So how do you go about zeroing in, first of all, just on a possible location? Well, a, a great question. And uh, the, the National Marine Sanctuary, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, we think there's about 200 historic shipwrecks wow. in the sanctuary. And there's about 100 of them that we've, we've located with this one. And so um, we a few years back, we found the Ohio, which is the, the ship that collided with the Ironton. Uh, they both sank, and the, the Ironton remains lost. We couldn't find it. So we had an idea where it could be. And you know, again, we're systematically mapping. Uh, we, we scour through the archival records. There there were a couple of survivors that had had um, some accounts of it, looking at weather data, trying to figure out where the ship might have drifted to after it was hit. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately found it and uncovered this mystery. And, um, you know, the lake the Great Lakes are this cold, fresh water, and they have some of the best preserved shipwrecks in the entire world um, because there's not the salt that corrodes the iron and steel. There's not the marine organisms that will devour um, the organic material like the wood. So I, I tell people this one, it, it's hard to call it a shipwreck because it, it's literally a ship sitting on the bottom, fully yeah. intact, mast still standing, rigging, draping from the mast. It's, it, it's really incredible. So what caused it to sink then? What do we know about the, the damage that was done? Yeah, it was it was a collision, and, and you talked about it was a busy area. And you think of where do accidents happen in our lives? They they happen in busy intersections generally, right? right? And so this was an area where the the northbound uh, traffic on Lake Huron and the southbound traffic of those two shipping lanes came together, uh, and and the, those that traffic passed by each other. And the, the Ironton, although a, a schooner or sailing vessel, it was being towed um, by a steamer that was done at that turn of the century type of point to be more efficient, um, but a storm came up, those late fall storms we get here in this part of the world, and uh, seas were getting pretty rough. The steamer that was towing the Ironton had to cut it loose, and so the crew on the Ironton struggled uh, to get its sails up and try to remain its control. As that was happening, it drifted across that shipping lane, and uh, the Ohio, which was heading south, um, uh, they crossed paths and collided in that storm, and the Ohio sank almost immediately the ironton uh drifted around for about an hour or so uh, before it finally sank and that lifeboat as you mentioned plays a pretty uh haunting part of, of this, this story yeah i mean haunting is right it's one of the the powerful images uh of of yeah. this wreckage is that there it is as as the story was known yeah. over all of these decades that the lifeboat was still tethered to the ship when it went down and there it is yeah the, the crew um actually was trying to board the lifeboat it was it was going down um they couldn't detach couldn't detach it um from the wreck and had they been able to do that you know they, they likely could have survived uh, they weren't able to and as, as you mentioned five five perished with with this site um and then when we we went down and looked at the site for the very first time there there was a lifeboat um you know still attached uh sitting 
sitting right alongside the ship. Now, as I understand it, though, no human remains were, were found at this site. What, what does that tell us? Yeah, you know, um, th- these types of ship, you know, you would there would have been time to get off the ship. Um, mm-hmm. You know, often um, these commercial vessels, there, you know, there's a pretty small crew on, on this vessel where um, if there was time, everybody would have been on deck. And um, often these cases, when, when remains are recovered, historically when they were, they would wash ashore. Or that that did not happen in this case, but they um, a lot of the wrecks where lives were lost. They they don't always stay aboard the vessel. So but it happens? is a great reminder that these yeah. these are really monuments. Um, right. They're incredible historical artif- artifacts themselves, and talk about the technology of of the time. But uh, it's a great reminder to the men and women that worked worked on that lakes and the oceans, and and you know what they did to build our, both of our countries like this. Is, is such such amazing there, and it, it's about the people, and you know there's still people out there fishing and working uh, commercial shipping today that that help drive our economy and, and feed us. So it's it's a great monument to those that worked on the water before and, and still today. Right, and and I mean this this speaks to the work that the the sanctuary does in terms of once this is discovered and this has been studied and documented, what happens now? Because th- this this is is to be left there, isn't it? It is, yeah. We, you know, we we feel strongly that this is essentially a national park in the water, and mm-hmm. uh, we encourage people to visit our sites. Um, not all of them are this deep. We're not releasing the depth and coordinates of this just yet. We'll do that um, in, in the coming months, probably. But it, it's deep. It's you know, well over sixty meters. So it's a uh, it's it specialized divers to go go to this place. But um, eventually, we'll, we'll we'll open it up, and some divers will come to visit it. But we we have a large visitor center here where we try to interpret these sites, um, but we have some amazing, very shallow wrecks. Uh, like I said, there's 200. There's some that are, you know, in just a couple of couple of meters of water where you can take you out on a paddleboard or snorkel to go visit. We have a glass-bottom boat. So there's, there's diving for just about every level of diving here. And again, there's some of the best preserved shipwrecks in the world. Um, we're also, they're, they're great to inspire people. Um, we think these type of discoveries inspire not just the students we work with to try to get them interested in in science and technology, but also conservation and preservation. And uh, at the same time, it helps the economy of our, our little community that we're located in. No doubt. Well, much more on all of this, including some remarkable uh, photos and videos of this discovery. It's thunderbay.noaa.gov. Jeff Gray, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Oh, it was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for your time. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Jeff Gray. He's the superintendent of the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in Michigan. So that's the uh, Michigan Thunder Bay, not the Ontario Thunder Bay. Different lakes. So this is uh, Lake Huron just off the Michigan coast. So obviously on the U.S. side uh, of Lake Huron. And, you know, within the sanctuary, they, by best guess, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 shipwrecks. And so, yes, it is, it is quite a remarkable history uh, of this area of the Great Lakes, and especially at that time of the 1800s, how busy this, this all was for shipping. So 1894, September of 1894 is when this collision occurred. And both these ships sank. The Ohio was one that uh, had been discovered. But, you know, for over 120 years, nobody could find where the Ironton was. So they finally got some idea in 2017. It took a couple more years before they could confirm that. And then it took a few years just to do all of the necessary work before they could go public with the announcement. So that's what's happened now this week. 
some point soon, he says, they'll release the coordinates. They'll let people know where this is. I mean, more than 60 meters deep, that's not easily accessible for your average tourist. But there would be ways for people to go down and take a look. It's, it's kind of cool. It's like a national park in the water, he said. So they're not going to take this ship out. That's its final resting place. That's where it's going to stay. But it's so eerie to see these images. Because that combination of just the cold, cold temperature, you know, it's fresh water, not salt water. You just don't have the kinds of elements in the ocean that, that erode these, these wreckages. It is magnificently preserved, as it says on their website. And I don't think that's, that's an overstatement. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So, thunderbay.noaa.gov. More there on this particular discovery, some of the images. And I guess if at some point you find yourself in that part of Michigan, maybe something you want to check out yourself. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.